Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. It was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I've seen Dan Dicko hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, you know, I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Dickow. Conversations throughout the world of sports, obviously it's usually focused on basketball. Today's guest, a tremendous basketball coach with big-time roots in the Pacific Northwest, has had a lot of success at a few different places. Currently the associate head coach at Pepperdine, helping that resurgence in the WCC, Coach Ken Bone. Coach, life can't be too bad in Malibu, is it? <laughs> Believe it or not, it's sunny today and uh, the beach looked nice as I was strolling into campus. Yeah, a lot different here. Uh, we've, we're under a winter storm warning in uh, the eastern part of the state of Washington. I'm looking out in my front yard. We've got about three inches already this morning, so I, I would gladly trade places with you this morning on, on the beach or in the gym with the, the sun right outside the, the door. Want to get right into it. You're a coach, as I mentioned, who's had uh, has a tremendous network in the Pacific Northwest. You grew up in the Seattle area. I understand your dad was a really good high school coach. Is that where you learned your love for the game, and is that where you wanted to become a coach? It is. You know, my brother and I, uh, who he just resigned from high school coaching this last spring. Finally, uh, we were we were right there for a lot of his practices, a lot of my dad's games. They used to play on Tuesday afternoons. My mom would come pick us up at school, and when we were young, and and take us to wherever Ballard, Roosevelt, Garfield, and to watch the high school games. And basketball is just a huge, huge part of our life growing up. With being going to a lot of those schools that you mentioned, you've, you've had an up-close personal seat to, to the Seattle Metro League, uh, both as a young fan, then as a player in high school, now evaluating and recruiting both at the Division II and at the Division I level. What is it about the Seattle basketball scene that, that separates Seattle from a lot of other places? I would say the networking of people. You know, the, the, I guess the first guy that comes to my mind is Jamal Crawford and what he's given back to the community. But a number of those guys, whether, you know, in whatever way they've given back, they've been available to younger guys. And that's not always a great deal. But uh, for the most part, I think, you know, the Brandon Roy's, the Nate Robinson's, um, I mean, you could just go on and on of the basketball players that are out there now or have been out there that have come back and played in open gyms, whether it's at University of Washington or somewhere down in Tacoma, Tacoma Community College, um, Green Lake, you name it, those guys get together and they'll play with the community. And I think they've had a great deal of influence on younger kids in the Seattle, Tacoma area. 
That's awesome that you mentioned Green Lake because when I was a high school kid growing up in southwest Washington and Vancouver, I would always come up for workouts, spring leagues, and different things in in Seattle. Um, But everybody would always talk about Green Lake. And it wasn't until I was at the University of Washington as a player that I went and played at Green Lake a few times. Those games, pickup games, were incredibly competitive, whether it was outdoors or inside. There's always be a, a... some really good players there with all your time around that Seattle basketball scene. Is there a player that I know you mentioned the Jamals and the Nate Robinson and Brandon Royce, but is there a guy that maybe was in the seventies or eighties that you can remember that absolutely stood out, but doesn't get the credit or isn't known with the name nowadays? Well, I'm going to go way back. Um, and I'm a little bit biased because I've got to know Steve Hawes over the years. In fact, he even helped me for one year at Seattle Pacific. He lives on Queen Anne Hill and, and he'd just come down to the base of the hill and, and help out at Seattle Pacific. But what an unbelievable person, uh, an incredible resource to have in your staff. Uh, before he was with us, he was with Coach Nance at University of Washington for a few years. Um, he was an outstanding basketball player. Now, I guess I was too young or he maybe didn't get the exposure he should have received in the Seattle area because he was on Mercer Island and in the Kinko League. But you look back at what he accomplished at University of Washington, he, he, was, he was a great, great basketball player. And he's still involved in a sense of the basketball community. He just hung it up last year as a high school coach from a small little school called Bush School um, right near University of Washington, just a small private school. But Steve was one of those guys. And I also think James Edwards, you know, James Edwards ended up going on to the NBA after a successful career at Washington. And I think he won a couple rings, different places he was at, but he was, he was a really good basketball player back in the seventies. Clint Richardson ended up being a a phenomenal scorer at O'Day high school, went on to play college ball at Seattle U and was a part of the 76ers team that I, I think they might've won a championship or at least played in the championship, maybe in the mid eighties. But those are a few guys that uh, were very influential with the Seattle community way back when. So you you're from that Seattle area. Um, You played at Seattle Pacific. You, you had a couple early stints as a head coach at different places. You get your chance to be the head coach at your alma mater and you did a really nice job there getting them a number of times to the NCAA Division II National Tournament. What was it like leading your alma mater? And is that a place that you felt you wanted to coach for the whole your whole coaching career? Or did you always have, at some point, aspirations to become a Division I head coach? I did have aspirations, but I was really comfortable at Seattle Pacific in a good way. I mean, I was still extremely driven. And the women's coach at that time at Seattle Pacific was a guy named Gordy Presnell, who now is at Boise State. He's leading the women's program there. He's won the last three conference tournament championships. And he's had great success. But him and I were really, really close. And uh, we would often talk about, man, it'd be nice to be at, at this school or that school and give the division one a shot and, and, and see what it's like to coach at a, a little bigger time than Seattle Pacific or division two. It's funny. I've talked to Gordy just yesterday and we talked about our days at Seattle Pacific again and just what a great time of our career that was. And 
it's, it's just an awesome place to coach at the division two and the division three level. I look at, um, you know, Matt Logie and what he did at Whitworth and now what he's doing at Point Loma and Jim Hayford, what he did at Whitworth. And before that, Warren Fredericks, you know, just to talk about a local guy there and, or local school there in Spokane. Those are, those are fun jobs where I think the kids, in my opinion, have a little better perspective on balancing basketball and life and their careers. Whereas at the division one level becomes so much about getting to the league. And if not the league, I got to go to Europe and make money. And, and a huge part of that, again, in my opinion, is, is ego. Um, instead of maybe doing what's best um, long-term for certain people. But going back, my, my days at SPU were, uh, were a lot of fun. But when Lorenzo came to town, I'll go back to the Green Lake deal. I either met Lorenzo at the intramural building in, at UW because there was a lot of good runs at the intramural building at UW or at Green Lake. But I know we played against each other both places numerous times back in the early 80s. And that's when I first met him. And now you, you speed it up to 2002, 22 years later, and he becomes the head coach at UW. And I just thought if I'm ever going to make the move from Seattle Pacific, it'd be a perfect time to do it where we didn't have to relocate as a family. We had three young daughters and I could coach with a guy that I really uh, didn't know great, but I trusted him. I got to know him off, you know, through those years. He was with Athletes in Action, then he's with UCLA, and we'd see each other on the road or at the Final Four and spend a little bit of time together. And I just felt like it was a good, safe time to leave SPU and to make that move. Um, but it was hard. Seattle Pacific's a, a great, you know, again, it's my alma mater, like you said. I love Seattle. And uh, it was a lot of fun to coach there, and we had decent success. So it was a tough place to leave. You were at UW in, in that mid-2000s era where you had some really good players. Brandon Roy, uh, Trey Simmons, Nate Robinson, the list goes on and on. What was it about those guys that made uh, UW so successful at the time? I would say their competitive their competitiveness and uh, that the fact that there were those guys and you bring in Bobby Jones and, and the guys that I remember, Will Conroy, Nate Robinson, Bobby Jones, as probably the three that created an environment in an intensity level every day in practice and in almost every single drill where I felt like we just got better and better and better in practice because of um, the level of intensity and toughness that those guys brought to the table. And it forced guys like Brandon Roy and Mike Jensen and other guys to kind of step up a little bit who were extremely talented, but they needed to step it up every day to compete against these guys that were just below them talent-wise, but would just bring it. And uh, that's what I recall being a, a, a huge benefit to our program at UW. I would agree when I see a competitive team that in practice, when I'm able to go to, to broadcast uh, with my broadcast work, you see a team, when they're competitive, you see them early in the year, you're going to see progress throughout the course of the year or even into the next year. That competitive fire you saw in your players while you were at UW, you get your first shot at the Division One head coaching level with Portland State. How do you translate the success that you had at SPU, then your assistant coach years at UW, to become – a competitive program at Portland State that's kind of bit that was floundering before you got there. 
Well, first of all, I hired some guys that did a great job as assistant coaches to recruit the guys that we felt could compete. And Curtis Allen, who ironically I'm working with now, we're on staff together at Pepperdine. He was a player at Washington and, and relates really well with people and felt like he could be a, an asset to our staff uh, in recruiting. And then Tyler Geving, we brought him along. And we, we put together a staff of guys that uh, I think really embraced the, the work ethic that we needed to, to have to be successful at Portland State. It was about a, as opposite of job from Seattle Pacific as you could get. You know, you got this little Seattle Pacific cocoon, almost small little Christian school. And now you're at uh, Portland State and you're recruiting a whole different brand of player. But I felt like that's where we made a, a good move of recruiting kids that fit the, the mission of the university, kids that fit where we felt we could get an advantage within our conference. Um, there were a lot of kids that were attracted to being at Portland State an inner city school that we, we, we couldn't get some guys that were going to Weber state and Montana and Northern Arizona, but we could get some tough gritty kids uh, to come to Portland state who were similar to, to, again, the Will Conroy's and Nate's and Bobby Jones's. And we became really uh, a tough, aggressive squad. You get that Portland state program back up and running and, and really playing at a high level in the big sky. You go to back-to-back -back NCAA tournaments. I can imagine uh, somebody that has a great basketball mind like yourself. You've been in it. You, you're a competitor. You want to coach at the highest level. And on the West Coast, that means coaching in the Pac-12. You get your chance uh, to take over a Pac-10, Pac-12 program at Washington State. What was that thought process like? as you're evaluating whether you want to leave Portland State and move to Pullman and take over a new challenge? Dan, I really didn't give it a lot of thought, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. Growing up in Seattle and being able to coach in the Northwest is what I always wanted to do. I just, I didn't want to move around the country nor move my family and our daughters from, from location to location, especially around the country knowing that my wife and, and myself, our families are in the Seattle area. And so being able to go to Washington State and still be in the state and close enough to Seattle where you know my family could get back and forth on weekends and whatnot. And then also just having an opportunity to coach at that time in the Pac-10 was a, was a no-brainer for me. And so it was an easy move, although I knew we had our work cut out for us. It wasn't like I looked at just a two of the previous three years and Tony Bennett had it going and I was oblivious to the other 40 or 50 years. So I knew we, you know, I, we had our work cut out for us to be successful there, but to make that move um, was one I'm glad I made and one that I needed to make. As a coach in the, in the PAC 10, the PAC 12, there are advantages and disadvantages to every uh, program in the school and the location. Um, what are the advantages to Washington State? Because everybody talks so much about the disadvantages, kind of, you know, hard to get to um, the, the tradition at times. But there's a lot of advantages if you find the right players, if I'm if I'm correct. And I think you are correct. I think that um, the intimacy of Pullman and the Palouse can be a huge advantage. And I think, again, I'll go back to Tony Bennett. Um, he's not the only one, but he's the one most recently that they were able to get the right guys 
and they were the right type of people that it was about winning and it wasn't about their own accolades. Um, and it's just a, the, the intimacy again of the, of the, the location there in Pullman, um, you can take advantage of that. Your kids aren't spread out all over. When I was at Washington, for instance, Washington, for instance, we had a couple of guys living, one guy in Cap, two guys on Capitol Hill, one guy in Queen Anne Hill, and, and two in Bellevue. Let alone, the Washington campus is about the size of Pullman. <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually, we had a couple of guys living in Lake City, and so they're really spread out. And, and I didn't feel like after being at Seattle Pacific and then going to Washington, I didn't feel like we had that intimate program. We had a good program. We had really a lot of a lot of talent, but to me, Pullman was similar to Gonzaga. And Gonzaga is a, a smaller town, but even there, the guys pretty much live right near campus. They have access to the gym all the time. They're together, hanging out all the time. And I think that's a huge benefit being at Washington State. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare, dead stock, or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop the pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. You coached Clay Thompson for, I believe, one year at Washington State. Am I correct? Two years. Two years. What was it that stood out about Clay Thompson? Um, and did I can only imagine you knew he was going to be or you believed he, he was going to be a good pro. Did you ever think he was going to be the level of pro that he, he became? Man, Dan, I wish you wouldn't have asked that because I've got to admit, I, I didn't know if he'd be a good pro. I've always done a poor job of, I guess, evaluating guys from college to pro. I thought Brandon Roy would make it, but he'd be in the league five, six, seven years and it'd be good, be good, but not an all-star. And with Clay having a chance to coach him for a couple of years, uh, I guess I felt like, okay, that guy can really shoot. He's a decent ball handler decent playmaker. I think he'll make it, but um, he better get on the right team and be able to prove himself to ever be a starter. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I remember, I remember our first, my first year, Reggie Moore was the, the point guard and did a good job. And we had Xavier Thames in the backcourt, um, two good guards, but we were playing at Cal and Michael Thompson, Clay's dad showed up at the hotel. And we're just talking before we're checking in and he was already checked in. He just said, Hey, by the way, um, you know, if you ever get stuck at the point, Clay can play the point too. He's pretty good at the point. 
And I was like, yeah, 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 I hear what you're saying. Okay, okay. And I walked away thinking, man, he just doesn't get it. <laughs> Clay can't be a point guard. But Michael was right. Clay really could have played that position and done just fine. He had phenomenal instincts. Um, he could anticipate things. He handled the ball well enough. He's like 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, uh, could definitely shoot it. But he could really pass the ball, too. And so, to me, Clay was really, really good. I just didn't realize he was that good. You know, I'll have to I'll have to second that comment because at the tail end of my playing career, uh, we were at the some open gyms in Portland at Jefferson High School, and there was a number of NBA guys uh, like myself, Channing Fry, Steve Blake, uh, Ime Udoka at the time, and Clay was a college kid, and I <laughs> thought he was good. And I figured he was going to have an NBA career, but I wasn't expecting the NBA career that, that he's eventually ended up to carve out. And it's been fun to watch. It's been impressive to see. Um, and I know he looks back on his time in Pullman uh, with a lot of pride. When you move on from, when you're let go, move on from, uh, from Pullman, you've got a lot of opportunities, a lot of things. You end up going uh, and helping out at Gonzaga for, for a, a year or two before now being at Pepperdine. Your reputation in the basketball world is as a, an offensive-minded coach. Now, as a head coach, you've got to understand both ends of the ball. You might gravitate towards one more than the other. Does that kind of stigma bother you or affect you when somebody says, hey, his offensive his mind is really great? Does that affect you or bother you? No, it, it doesn't. I think after being a head coach, whether you're uh, – label is a little bit more defensive oriented and you let the other whoever guy on staff take over the offense I think you still have your hand in it quite a bit from what I've seen but as a head coach if you allow someone to take the defensive side you're just not quite as involved I think there's something about the game that you love drawing up plays and and tweaking this and tweaking that and, and being able to score and so Actually, when I came here, Lorenzo said, would you rather, because when I was at Washington years before with him, I was more involved with the offense and Cameron Dollar was involved with the defense. And so when I came here, Lorenzo actually gave me my choice. He said, which would you rather do? But I kind of felt again that knowing that and experiencing that, I felt like, you know, he's, he's going to be involved in the offense one way or another. So um, I took on the defense and I say took on the defense because I'd never really been in that role. And I felt like I could even grow as a coach, um, being more involved with the defense than the offense. That's a, that's an interesting uh, answer because I've always felt the same. Like coaches have to know both sides equally well. It just tends to be many times that because their team is more successful, maybe on one side of the floor or the other, they get kind of talked in, in, in along those lines. Now coming through the, the division two ranks, then being a, a very successful assistant at, at both Pepperdine now and UW and then a head coach at, at two different levels at the Division I level. Analytics have become a much bigger deal over the past 25 years, but in particular maybe the last 10 to 12. How do you look at analytics and break it down, not only for your own purposes, but then when you go talk to a head coach and be like, hey, this is something that I think we need to really focus in and look at to improve as a team? Well, I guess I'm the dinosaur there. I do look at analytics. 
And, and I think it's a huge, it is a huge part of the game now, but in my opinion, um, it's a little overrated. I think, I think there are programs, I won't mention any, but I think there are programs even within our conference that are so analytically based that it ends up hurting them at times because it's, Again, I, I think it's not having as good a feel for what's really going on at that moment. It's more about what are the numbers? What, what do the numbers say? And I, I think the analytics are important. You better know them and you better know what the other team believes within the analytics. But I think you can play off of that and, and make it an advantage for you if you understand the other program's philosophy there. Um, maybe I'm being a little bit confusing when I say all this, but... I think the three-point shot, you better take a great look at how many threes teams are taking, but also, okay, are they, how good are they shooting it? Okay, they shoot 32 threes a game. That's great. But if they're shooting 31%, to me, it's sweet. Let them keep shooting it. So um, I look at it both ways, I guess. I think it's important, but I don't get carried away in it. I agree. I've always looked at the game in three ways, eyes, ears, and numbers. What do your eyes tell you? And the more experience you have being in a gym, watching games and players, uh, your eyes are going to start opening some things that maybe others don't see. Your ears, what are the other coaches or, mm -hmm. or players telling you about someone? Um, and then also the analytics. I think there needs to be a nice balance and mix of the yeah. three. There's going to be times where others kind of have a little more sway and influence, but overall they need to be pretty balanced. Now, you've had a couple different runs as a head coach. Um, there's always in college basketball circles, the coaching carousel. Do you still have interest or a passion to be a head coach? Or do you like, um, where you're at right now in Malibu with Pepperdine? I love where I'm at and my wife loves where we're at. <laughs> and we have a daughter that's finishing up her senior year at Azusa Pacific here in LA, but last spring she moved home. And so it's awesome having her there in the house. And spending time with her, especially at this age, because you, you, you know how that's, well, you're not quite my age, but you know how that's going to work. You've heard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then our second daughter, um, she actually works here. She came here a year and a half ago to do some graduate work and another gal left. And so she moved into a position in the athletic department. So, I mean, I see her all the time and our third daughter's in Denver and she's married, but it's really cool to be near two of our three daughters um, living right, you know, I mean, living down here close to the beach or uh, the beach is very accessible to us and Pepperdine's a great institution. It reminds me a lot of Seattle Pacific and then working with Lorenzo. It's, it's really, really great situation. Now, if someone were to call me tomorrow and offer me a good job at a place where I thought I could enjoy it and have success, um, it's, I'd rather be a head coach than an assistant. I think that's why we get in it, but I don't foresee that happening. So I'm totally content here. It's uh, it's an awesome place to be. Um, and I'm going to ride it out here, I think. Well, I love that answer because I, I can see a lot of uh, upward trajectory of that Pepperdine program. Lorenzo is one of the best in the business, uh, both as a coach and as a person. And um I can see there being a lot of success in, in Pepperdine's future. Last question, Coach, before I let you go. Um, with all of COVID 
kind of protocols, guidelines, shutdowns with different programs um, across the country this year. How have you guys as a staff been able to continue to kind of mold young men, not just basketball players, but men, because it is such an interesting and, and weird time to be a college student athlete? Well, I think Lorenzo did a great job starting last maybe June of putting together some Zoom, Zoom meetings. Maybe I was, actually, I guess it was more May. And every week we would bring someone else on. You know, we had an ex-player from Pepperdine. We had an ex-player from Washington that he had coached. And, and that guy talked about his struggles uh, actually as a player in college and dealing with Coach Romar and, and the frustration there for him. But then, but it made him a better player, and, and now he's in the NBA having success. Uh, we had Clark Kellogg, Isaiah Thomas, um, and uh, chief of police from down here in Los Angeles that Lorenzo's brother had known since childhood. And so, what we did was try to bring people in on these Zoom meetings and educate our guys um, about life. And, it, and most of them had nothing to do with basketball. Uh, the, one guy, I don't remember his name, he's from Seattle, but he'd climbed, climbed Mount Everest. And that was a great session. And our kids had a lot of questions. And, and I guess that's probably what COVID has done maybe more than any other time in my career is we've always talked about, you got to deal with adversity. You got to turn the page. You got to be tough. Da, da, da. Well, now it's definitely real life. You really have to deal with adverse situations in all facets. And it's given us a platform to teach those things and, and not just to pick and roll on how to, how to protect the rim, but let's talk about life. In basketball, you know, it, it fits in there a little bit, but let's, let's try to help prepare these guys for life and what's after college. Awesome. Well, Coach, I appreciate the time. I wish Pepperdine continued success, which under yours and Coach Romar's guidance, I'm sure you guys are going to keep – trending upward in the WCC. So thanks again and appreciate you joining the ISO. All right. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.